I've gotten accustomed to preaching outside. I feel like I'm, I'm really confined right now in my, with my movements. Um, we are going to, going back, we're going to be going back to the epistle of James today. Um, but before I get into it, let me, let me, let me lay, lay a little background, or not necessarily a little background, but um, I love the book of James, and I'm, re- I'm sure I probably have told you guys that on probably several occasions. But we, several weeks ago, uh, I can't remember, three, four weeks back here at Oak Grove, uh, we utilized James uh, as we talked about what it looks like to love our neighbor. Uh, James has some very definitive things to say about what it looks like to love our neighbor, and he challenges us very, very much. And I think that what you will find throughout the book of James is that very thing. You're going you're gonna to be challenged. If you'll sit down and, and read the book of James, it's about it's five chapters long. It'll take you probably about 20 minutes uh, to read the entire book. If you're my wife, it'll take you about three minutes. Um, I, don't, I wish I could be a speed reader like that, but I'm not. Uh, but that's about how long it'll take mo- probably the average person to read the entire book of James. It'll take you a lifetime to master it. It'll take you a lifetime not to be challenged by it. And I always say to myself and I always tell other people, if you ever feel like you're really walking upright in your faith, I would not suggest reading the book of James because it will definitely bring us all back down to earth. So having said that, let me just give you a couple of reminders real quick um, of some of the things that we discovered about James um, several weeks ago when we talked about it. Number one, remember that James is the half-brother of Jesus. James is traditionally believed to be, to be the half-brother of Jesus. He would have been Joseph and Mary's natural child. So he grew up with Christ. Obviously, he had to know Jesus pretty doggone well. He spent his life with him. They grew up together. They ate together. They hung out together. Let me ask you this. Can you imagine this? Knowing that, can, you, can, can any of us possibly fathom what it must have taken for James to eventually come around to the knowledge, the admission, and the, uh, the acceptance of who his brother was? I've got a sibling. Does everybody else have siblings in here? Most of us probably, or had. Can you imagine what it must have been like had this been one of our siblings who's declaring to us that he or she, he in this case, is the Messiah, that he is the one that we have been talking about, that our religion has been talking about for hundreds, thousands of years that was coming, what would Jesus possibly have had to have shown to make his own brother believe, not just believe, but to know that Christ really was who he said he was? So considering all that, again, I think I've told you this before. Um, oh, and by the way, James also became a, a huge leader in the Christian church eventually. He, he, was the leader of, he be, eventually became the leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem, which is a pretty big deal. So considering all that, you know, I tend to believe that James knows what he's talking about. I put a lot of trust and I put a lot of faith in, in James. Um, number one, for being the half-brother of Christ, and for number two, just the, just the sheer knowledge that he came to that admission and that acceptance that this little boy that I grew up with is the Messiah. And what kind of proof that would have had to have possibly have taken for him to eventually do that. So I put a lot of stock in him. I put a lot of stock in the book of James and what he has to say so. And this is just my opinion. Uh, take, take it if you want it. But I believe that James probably knew Jesus better than any other disciple. And I think that he probably reflects in his words and his writings probably more than any other book. Um, what Jesus believed and what Jesus preached and what Jesus practiced. So what we're going to do today 
is we're going to focus on just a few scriptures from James that are about prayer. I mentioned prayer early, a little bit earlier when we were doing our announcements and, and restarting these prayer groups. Um, it was something that we started about a year, year and a half or so ago at Broxton. We would do it on Tuesday nights and several of us would get together and we would, and we would just pray together. Um, and I want to restart that to, to a degree because I think it's so important. But the scriptures that we're going to be looking to today um, are going to be about prayer, but specifically it's going to be about that kind of prayer. It's going to be about that communal prayer or what we sometimes call corporate prayer. Praying together as the body of Christ, praying together as groups, as groups of disciples, not just in our individual lives. I'm sure everybody in this in this room gets to get gets on their own as individuals and we all pray to God and we should do that. Of course, that's part of our spiritual practice. Hopefully that's part of our daily spiritual practice. But how often do we actually get together with our brothers and sisters and pray together? How often do we get together with our brothers and sisters and intercede, pray intercessory prayer? interceding on the behalf of our brothers and sisters, for our brothers and sisters, uh, with our brothers and sisters, for our communities, for our churches. And James talks about this because it is so, not, not just because it's so important, but because it is so powerful. It is a powerful thing when children of Christ, when disciples of Jesus get together and pray with and for one another. This is an area where I think a lot of churches suffer, even within our own tradition, our own Methodist tradition. Now, let me tell you this. Let me explain this to you. It wasn't always like that. We don't see a lot of, we don't see a lot of group prayer in our tradition today. We'll pray together when we're going through the liturgy of communion or something like that. Maybe when we gather on Christmas Eve and we do some kind of liturgy together. But very, very rarely do we actually get together. We may say the Lord's Prayer together, and that's beautiful too. Um, but how often do we really engage one another with one another in spontaneous, heartfelt prayer? Very, very rarely. Very, very rarely. And I think that's a mistake. And I believe that's one of the reasons that we suffer, not just as individuals, but also as churches. But before we go any further, let's take a look at the scripture real quick. It's James chapter 5. And it's the, it's the very last chapter of some of the very last verses there in the book of James. And we're going to be looking, we're going to be reading 13 through 16. James 5, 13 through 16. And this is, how, this, is, this is how James directs the church that he's writing to. He says, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call for the elders of the church to pray over them. And to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayers of a righteous person is the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And that's the word of God for the people of God. Some of y'all, some of y'all know, I think most of you guys know that, that prior to entering the, the Methodist church, Sandy and Parker and I spent about two years in a, in a Pentecostal denomination. I believe wholeheartedly that if God didn't place us there, he allowed us to make that decision. 
And it was a good decision on our part because it opened up a lot of doors for us as, as individuals and as a couple and as Christians in general. Two things that I learned from being in that particular de denomination because they focus so much on these things is number one, I gained a, 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 an exceptional knowledge and appreciation for the very realness of the Holy Spirit. That's not something that I was taught coming up. We all believed in the Trinity. We all believed God, Father, God, Son, God, Holy Spirit. But it seemed like the Holy Spirit wasn't, wasn't really emphasized in the, in, 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 the, in the traditions that I was brought up in. He was kind of, he was, he, was, he was talked about, but he was kind of way over here. We had Jesus and God over here. and Well, yeah, there's the Holy Spirit, but we're not going to really get into that a whole lot. So as I was part of this group for a couple of years... That tradition emphasizes the very real and the very experiential aspect of the Holy Spirit. And it opened up a whole new world to me. And it's, it continues to be amazing because, yes, we can experience the Holy Spirit. I think we've experienced it here at Him at Oak Grove. I think we have had moments at Oak Grove and at Broxton where we have all felt the very real presence of God with us and God moving through our congregations I think all of us have felt that at some point. Well, that's not to say you have to have that feeling all the time, but that is definite evidence of the very realness of that. And I believe that today. And I'm thankful for, for what I learned from being in that particular tradition for that time. The second thing that I learned was the power of prayer. The very real power of prayer. And in particular, the very real power of community Call it corporate prayer, whatever you want to call it. Brothers and sisters in Christ getting together and, and praying with and praying for one another. We would go to prayer meetings. They had, uh, I think their prayer meetings were on Monday nights. And, and Sandy and I regularly attended, attended those. If I, would, if I didn't go, she would go. And that's what we would do. We would gather in a circle and we would pray for one another. The pastor would generally pray over, over everybody. And... and Call it what you want to call it, folks, but I believe that I've witnessed miracles in my life. I've witnessed things at this point. I've witnessed things in this church that you will never be able to convince me otherwise were not miracles and were not a direct result of us praying together. Do y'all remember prior to the coronavirus, there was a Sunday over here where we prayed over this lady right here. And we anointed her with oil. We all placed our hands on her. What was going on at that time, Diane? My cancer was back. Your cancer was back. That's right. What happened on your next doctor's appointment? I'm Cancer-free. You will never be able to convince me that we did not experience a miracle at Oak Grove United Methodist Church that day. Several weeks ago, this woman over here had an episode that we all remember, unfortunately, all too well. One of the first things that we did is several people rushed to her, put their hands on her, and they prayed over her. What do you remember about that situation? I remember you putting your hand on my head and praying for me. And what happened? You'll never be able to convince me that she did not experience a miracle that day. 
as a direct result of people faithfully praying over her, praying over this, this lady. And I'm not mentioning, I'm not mentioning your names because we're on camera, if you're wondering why I'm being so weird about that. Um, you'll never convince me otherwise. I've had another experience at Broxton one time during one of our prayer meetings. And I, and I honestly can't even remember what the situation was with, with this individual. But they came back and they told me later, we had done the same thing, anointed with oil, prayed over them, laid our hands on them. They came back to me the next day and they said they were not having that problem anymore. You never convince me that we have not all witnessed miracles. I believe that I am a miracle. I've talked to you guys about my substance abuse issues before. I tried for 20-something years, on again, off again, on again, off again, to fix that problem on my own, within my own means, my own abilities, and it never happened. When God interceded and I accepted His help, that's when it stopped. You'll never be able to convince me that I am not a walking miracle. Miracles are real. Miracles happen. Do we believe in them anymore? Miracles also come about as a result of prayer as a result of anointing, as a result of praying, laying our hands on people, and praying together. And this is something that I, I just want to instill in us. I think we suffer so bad because we don't put these things into practice as a church, as church is. I'm not just talking about Oak Grove. I'm talking about just in general. Y'all remember those old school altar calls? When's the last time y'all seen an old school altar call where people were coming up to the altar and snot was flying everywhere and, and tears were flowing? We've all witnessed that, but when was the last time? I believe part of that is because we're not praying together. Check out verses 13 and 14. He's very explicit about this. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. It's interesting to me that James instructs the, per the sick person to call upon the elders of the church. It's kind of a given that that sick person is going to pray for themselves, right? <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm sick, certainly I'm going to, if, especially if it's really, really serious, I'm going to go to God in prayer. James tells us, take, take it a step further. If you're sick, go to the elders of your church. Ask them to pray for you. You're not alone in this. We're not alone in this thing. Pray for one another. Not everybody gets healed. So don't think that I'm trying to give anybody any kind of sense of false hope about this stuff. Not everybody gets healed. We're all appointed to pass away at some point. But I do believe wholeheartedly in healing. And I think that comes up again as a result of us maybe just following some simple directions <laughs> and having that faith to pray over and with one another. I believe in physical healing. I believe in spiritual healing. And I believe that God uses these faithful communities, these churches, to accomplish that a lot of time. Do we pray with confidence? Do we pray when we pray? Do we pray with the confidence? Here's part of our communion liturgy. At the very end of it, I'll say something to this effect. Now, now with the confidence of people of the children who are children of God, let us pray. And then we'll all pray together the Lord's Prayer. When we pray, do we truly pray with the confidence of children of God? Let me ask you this. And I've got this written down so I don't, so I don't mess it up. 
How often have you heard somebody say a prayer like this? How often have you heard somebody say something similar to these words? Oh God, if it be in your will, please heal this person. But if not, please give us the ability to accept the outcome. Y'all ever hear a prayer like that? We hear those all the time. Does that sound like a person who has the confidence of the power of God? Does that sound like a prayer that, that, that relays anybody with any real confidence in God's abilities? I don't think it does. I don't think it does. Do we really believe that God can do the miraculous? The interesting thing is you don't find this type of prayer in the Bible. You don't find people praying these types of prayers in Scripture. People expected God to heal. When you hear these prayers, when you see these prayers in Scripture, they expected that He was going to heal rather than expecting Him not really to do so. You find bold prayers in the Bible. You find not prayers that are just, that are just filled with, with maybe a little bit of doubt and trying to relieve myself of responsibility if he, if he doesn't heal them. You find people who pray powerfully and with confidence of people of the children of God. Not everybody's going to be healed. Again, I mean, repeat that. Even the people that Jesus healed eventually died, eventually passed away. But that does not negate the confidence that we have in God's abilities. And when he calls for the elders, when he calls for the elders, let's, let's, let's consider this too, by the way. When he says, when he writes here, um, what, what are the exact words? Is anyone among you sick? Let them call for the elders of church to pray over them. Elders doesn't just mean old people. <laughs> so let's not, let's, let's not have that confusion. <laughs> elders doesn't just mean old people. More specifically, it means people who are mature in their faith. Honestly, there's a lot of old people that I've known over the years that have gone to church that I would rather not pray for me. <laughs> it means people who are mature in their faith, people who do have the confidence, that confidence that we're talking about, that faith that we're talking about, the, the ones who recognize the reality of what, of what God truly can do. Real quick, I want to look at 15 and 16, um, and I'll read it real quick. The, uh, the, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they'll be forgiven. This is the part I want to concentrate on for a couple minutes. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Verse 15 kind of continues this process of, of, what, of what we're talking about, praying over and praying with one another. Uh, but because I don't want to preach all day long. I'm going to skip over that portion for now, but I want to take a deep look at it real quick. And again, just, just a few minutes is this instruction to confess our sins to one another. Whew. This instruction that, the, that James gives the church to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. What's the end of that sentence? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. This is part of it. This is, this is part of the deal. This is part of the process is confessing our sins before one another 
and praying for one another so that we may be healed, whether that's physical healing or spiritual healing. God offers that, and James offers, gives us instructions to how, how we go about doing that, as uncomfortable as that is, as uncomfortable as that is for us to, to, to talk about these things, to talk about our sins, to confess our sins and our, and our shortcomings and our, and our weaknesses. Why are we so averse to that? Because it's painful. Because we, we don't want people to know our weaknesses and our, and our, and our, our weak spots. We don't want people to know our, our dirty little dark secrets. I heard something yesterday at a, at a, at a group that I attended that uh, one, of the, one of the people there reminded me that uh, we are only as sick as our secrets. We are only as sick as our secrets. Confession brings healing. We're not trying to throw our dirt out there. We're not trying to, we're not trying to listen for the sake of gossiping and knowing everybody's dirty stuff. The fact of the matter is confession brings healing. Why are we, let me ask you this. Roll, roll this one around in your heads for a few minutes. Why are we more comfortable confessing our sins to Almighty God than we are with a human being? Judgment. <laughs> exactly. Shouldn't it be the opposite though? This is God. That we're talking to. It's more comfortable for us to confess to God than it is than it is other people. But it brings healing, folks. It, more often than not, we will be able to overcome our sin. We'll be able to overcome all these stumbling blocks, or we won't be able to overcome them until we reach that point where that point of humility, that point where we are able to humble ourselves and confess our sins to another person. It's just a fact. It's just a simple spiritual fact. We hold on to that sin, it's just going to fester until we let it go. But we will try with all of our might, all of our power to hold on to that just as long as we can. Y'all probably get tired of hearing me talk about uh, my involvement in 12-step programs, 12-step uh, uh, groups, AA, NA, those types of things. But there is so much correlation. There is so much correlation between what you find in, in, in 12-step rooms, AA, NA, those types of things, and, and, and disciplined Christian practice. I will tell you every day, all day long, that if churches looked more like AA meetings, we would have an explosion of evangelism. Because if you want to experience some brutal honesty, some people being honest about their sins, go to one of those. Some people who are really confessing some stuff, go to one of those. I think that's what church should look like. James thinks that's what church should look like. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of 12, when, when 12 step groups were first getting started, they were started within a Christian community. They were started by an evangelical Anglican priest by the name of Sam Shoemaker. Some other people, picked, and, and, and everything that was taught and everything that was practiced in these rooms was, was picked up from the book of James, 1 Corinthians 13, and the Sermon on the Mount. Now, some other folks picked up these lessons and, and, and eventually became what we now know as, as AA, stuff like that. They believe in confession because they know the healing that it brings. 
three of those 12 steps are all about confession. They tell you to make a personal searching, here it is, make a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourselves, and they expect you to write that down. Take a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourselves and actually put that on paper. After you do that, this is where confession comes in. We admit to God. This is the instructions. We admit to God, to another human being, and to ourselves the exact nature of our wrongs. That is step five of all 12-step programs that you'll find. We admit it to God, to ourselves, and to another human being. That's where the rubber meets the road, man. We can do it with God, and we can do it to ourselves, with ourselves all day long. But it's that other human being part that, that, that bogs us down. After, and if you ever get through that, the next step tells, tells them that we were entirely ready to have God remove all of our defects of character. Am I really ready to have God remove all of my sins, all of my defects of character? This isn't easy, but it's prescribed. And, and, and again, the correlation there is, is, is undeniable. James prescribes this right here in these verses, not because he's trying to beat us up, but because he knows through confession comes healing. Through confession comes healing. When I was, when I was getting the sermon ready, I came across this great quote. It kind of sums up everything that I'm talking about. And <clears throat> the author wrote, he said, uh, By confessing one's sins to another Christian, the person is making himself accountable for his or her sin. He or she is piercing the darkness of this secret that has locked him or her in that sin for so long. Once this is done, they can finally let go of that sin to God. Refusal to confess a sin can't... Now, this is important, and I'm guilty of this before, and I'm, I hope that everybody else is honest enough with themselves to admit that we are probably all guilty of this. Refusal to confess a sin can sometimes mean that the person is still nursing and coddling that sin and maybe even secretly enjoying it. How much do we enjoy our anger, maybe, sometimes? How much do we enjoy our, our self-righteousness? The Christian friend can assure the person, the person who is being confessed to, that God will forgive us based on 1 John 1, 9. And that scripture reads that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and He will purify us from unrighteousness. Now, y'all ain't got to confess your sins to me. <laughs> I think when we talk about confession a lot, I think, and this, this is horrible. It's horrible that we don't talk about confession in Protestant churches. We think about confession from, from within a Catholic context. And that's pretty much the limit of what a lot of us know about the idea of confession. That ain't it. You don't have to confess your sins to me. You don't have to confess your sins to any clergy. Go pick somebody. Pick somebody. That's totally up to you. Pick another brother and or, or, and or sister. Somebody that you trust. Somebody that you know well. Doesn't have to be me. Doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be any kind of preacher. Notice in that scripture that we just read that neither an elder that we talked about a while, nor a priest, is the designated confessor. He doesn't tell us that we have to go to clergy. But they were Christian believers in general. James says that, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. After confession comes prayer. And from 
prayer of faith comes healing.